In Psalm 52, one of David's psalms, the title I've got for this particular psalm is The End of the Wicked and the Peace of the Godly. The description is to the chief musician, a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Now to give some background, to set the stage for what David was going through as he pinned down these words by and through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, I'm going to skip back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I want you guys just to contemplate what's going on in the mind and the heart of David as I read this to you. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? I'll, I'll give a little bit of background before we kind of move on. In chapter 20, Jonathan, which is King Saul's son, who became a very, very close-knitted friend of David's and even formed a, a, a covenant, a horizontal agreement between these two men to hold each other up, to have each other's backs, to walk through life with one another. Um, as Saul's emotions started showing through and his desire to kill this great servant of his, David, what had happened in chapter 20 was Jonathan, Jonathan said, hey, David, look, go hide out there. Go hide out there in the wilderness. I'm going to go check, and I'm going to get a feeling from my dad as to whether or not he wants to kill you or whether he, whether he doesn't and whether it's safe for you to come back. And I'll let you know one way or the other. And as David was out there and Jonathan went through this, this feast celebration with King Saul, he had the opportunity to see the heart of his dad. And the heart of his dad, of King Saul, was that he wanted to kill David. He was after David's life. So they just got done at the end of chapter 20 of Jonathan coming out to David and, and speaking to him and saying, David, I'm sorry, my dad wants to kill you. You've got to go. So as David was fleeing, as he fled King Saul, we continue with chapter 21, where Ahimelech, the priest at the little town of Nob, says, why are you alone and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what, I've, what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. 
So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. The story continues, you guys, if you flip over to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel in verse 6. And we kind of pick up from Saul's perspective. It says, When Saul heard, verse 6, that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was standing in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, with his spear in his hand and all of his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is, a, is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep, with the edge of the sword. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I know that day when, or I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. 
Stay with me. Do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. So with that in mind, you guys, if we take a look at Psalm 52, and we read again the description, at least that I've got in my Bible, that says um, that it's a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah it means consider this. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah, consider this. The righteous also, also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' precious name, God, I thank you for inviting us in, inviting us in to to see the heart of David who was caught in the midst of a wicked world, Lord, who had no place, no place to go and no place for peace, no place for victory except you, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would reveal truth to us this morning as we get an opportunity to worship you in, in truth, to worship you in your word. And God, I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, you would reach into the hearts of the men and women in this place, Lord. That you would touch him, touch them with who you are, Lord Jesus. That they would experience you in an intimate presence, a new and fresh encounter of your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so we start with verse 1. As David says, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? And you know, the first thing that caught my attention as we took a look, and we take a look at Psalm 52, is this very first word at the beginning of this psalm where David asks, why? Why? And for those of us who know who Jesus is, the gospel of where he came from, leaving his place of majesty and glory and coming to this earth, fully God, fully man, living a perfect, sinless life and offering himself on the cross for your and my stead, for our sins, bled out and died in our place a substitutionary sacrifice. And he rose again from the dead, victorious over sin, victorious over death. 
and sits at the right hand of the Father for those who would come to believe in him as Lord. So the question of David is, why? Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continuously. Continually. It's a beautiful contrast. You know, what's set there is the goodness of God versus the boasting of evil man. You know, this boasting is futile in the eyes of the eternal perspective of God. You see, man is prideful, but God is good, he's holy, and he's true. And in his own words, in God's own words in Exodus chapter 34, as he passed by Moses on Mount Sinai, his description of himself in verse 5 and 6 is this. It says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That is the name of our God. You see, Doeg had no room to boast. His, his words and his work procured the slaughter of a band of defenseless priests. This tyrant's fury cannot dry up the ever-flowing river of God's mercy. No matter the extent or longevity of evil, the goodness and faithfulness and holiness of God will ever reign supreme. If you look at verse 2, it says, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. Your tongue devises destruction. You know, my mind goes directly to the description of the tongue in James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Look at this pattern of wickedness so far, just even in these first two verses. The pattern of wickedness in the world, and compare it to the character of the ruler of this world, the prince and power of the air, the devil himself. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus describes the devil this way. He says he is a liar and the father of all lies. Though Doeg, in the, the, story, the, the historical story that we taught, though Doeg gave the information to Saul for his assistance, you can see in Doeg's heart the absolute hatred for the priest's of the God of Jacob. With his sharp tongue, as it says in verse 2, with, with a sharp razor describing his tongue, Doeg, under the pretense of aiding Saul, achieved his deceitful end result of destroying the priests of God. Do we understand that we here and now, as believers, are described as the priests of God? In 1 Peter, 
chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Revelations chapter 1, verse 6, said Jesus has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. Jesus says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. John chapter 15, he described the same situation of the incompatibility between this world and us as followers of Jesus Christ. As he says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Verse 3 says, you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You see, the description so far is this. This is who we are in our wickedness without Jesus Christ. This is who we were before coming to faith in believing Jesus Christ as Lord. You see, for Doeg and for the wickedness of this world and for us outside of Jesus... If both evil and good were profitable and pleasant, we would have preferred evil. This man was much more at home in lying rather than speaking the truth. He delighted himself in falsehood. In Jeremiah chapter 17, we are described, our hearts are described, as it says this. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And then it says, after uh, verse 3, it says, Selah. Let us pause and let us contemplate. You see, Doeg, the Edomite, is dead and gone. Yet the enemy has many, many more people that would enjoy nothing more than to tear down the Lord's people and the Lord's church. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. The true church, according to Scripture, will never be compatible or acceptable to the world and its system. But remember, as a glimpse of hope, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, as he says on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Verse 4. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. See, wickedness has a taste, even a gusto, for evil language. They use devouring words that swallow men whole, 
and rend men to pieces like a lion. Evil men with evil minds are fond of these words and take extreme pride in their proficiency in the use of them. In their deceit, they say many injurious things and claim it all for justice. We run across it in the world, don't we? Every day. The truth is they're determined to put down truth and holiness and craftily go about under this transparent pretense of justice. Verse 5 says this, God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. Consider this. This is very strong language spoken against a persecutor of the Lord's church. It says God shall destroy him, pluck up his roots, and make an end of him. Doeg attempted to quench the truth, and instead the Lord will quench him. Ahimelech and his brother priests were cut off from their abode, and so will the one who compassed and contrived their murder. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 shows a description of the Lord's vengeance on evil. As it says, starting in verse 6, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony, a testimony among you was believed. You see in Revelations chapter 12, the beginning of our God and our Lord and his power over the enemy and our stance as fighting in this spiritual battlefield from a point of view of victory In verse 7 it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. You know, sometimes in our walk with Jesus, we are put in a position where we need to speak boldly and frankly, powerfully for the cause of the gospel. Verse 5 is sharp. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. And my mind goes to Paul on his first missionary journey. As he goes with Barnabas and he leaves the little town of Antioch 
And he goes over to the island of Crete and gets an opportunity to meet a sorcerer named Elymas. Do you guys remember the words that Paul, in the boldness of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, spoke to Elymas? He said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not, will you not continue to pervert the straight ways of the Lord? And he says, you will be blind for a time. Sometimes we have to be bold in our stance with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work at the cross over the attempts of wickedness in this world. At the end of chapter 5, it says, Selah. In other words, pause again. Behold the divine justice proving itself to be more than a match for human sin. Verse 6. It says, The righteous shall also see and fear and shall laugh at him. You know, in the midst of David's troubles, through the Lord he finds that he is in the midst of triumphs. Paul went through this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as he found himself in Troas. It says in verse 12, it says, Furthermore, Paul speaking, When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Do you remember the book of Esther? Okay, Esther's a little book right in the Old Testament, right before the book of Job. Esther was a Jewish girl who became the queen and had an uncle by the name of Mordecai, a righteous man who was getting persecuted by an evil man who was one of the assistants of the king, whose name was Haman. And God permitted Mordecai at the end of that that wonderful story to see Haman hanging on the gallows. As I was looking for comments and and studying for this, in this verse, there's a, um, an ancient common, commentation, I guess, on this verse from a guy by the name of Gajiris. And he said this. He said, This shall not be a secret judgment or known only to a few, but common fame shall spread abroad throughout the kingdom or city the notable punishments of the ungodly. The righteous also shall not pass by such an event with indifference, but with earnest eyes shall contemplate it. The righteous upon whose destruction the ungodly man was intent shall survive, and their lives will be eternally safe and blessed in the favor of God. It says at the end of this verse 6, it says, They shall laugh at him. And there is such a thing as a shout of righteous joy at the downfall of the tyrant and the oppressor, at the triumph of righteousness and truth over wrong and falsehood. Verse 7 
says, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. He trusted not in God, but he trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. You know, it's very hard to abound in riches as we do in this country and not put your trust in them. It's difficult. This is the trial that we face here in this country. And other countries around the world face different trials, but the trial we face is not putting our trust in our worldly treasures. Psalm 62, verse 10 says, if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Our hearts can easily be persuaded to sinfully trust in our, our riches. This is why Paul was so urgent with Timothy, with Timothy to persuade all rich men, not only worldly rich, but also the godly rich men, against the main two sins that accompany wealth. And that's pride and confidence in your riches. If we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul instructs Timothy this. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they will be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Jeremiah chapter 9. Let's see if I can find it here. Verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. You see the description of the evil man in verses 1 through 4 so far in this psalm is also the description of our sin nature. This is who we are now and who we always will be without the awesome power of Jesus. Without his abiding presence, without the power of his transforming holiness upon us by and through our belief and faith in him as Lord. This description here in Psalm 52 is our wickedness. The punishment and the penalties he described in verse 5 that we just got done reading through shows the cup of the wrath of God poured out upon evil in this world, and that's the lot that's due each and every one of us and there's only one way out. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, Paul preached to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, and he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Peter taught in Acts chapter 3. He says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, peace and victory only comes in and through Jesus. There is no other answer. And the penalty that it shows here in Psalm 52 and verse 5 is the penalty that's due us outside of Jesus. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. Let us understand that that verse and the description of us in verse 6 and 7 that says, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Let's understand that that's the epitaph that's written on our gravestones describing who we are without Jesus, the giver of life. Without Jesus, who is life. And outside of him, there is no life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. says this it says do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither fornicators nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Acts chapter 10, the gospel that Peter preached to the house at Cornelius, verse 42 and 43. Peter says, that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. There's victory in Jesus. And you know, the invitation is given to each and every one of us. Whether you're a professed believer and have been for a long time, and maybe not walking in the joy and victory of Jesus, or whether you've come here for the very first time and you've never heard the name of Jesus, the invitation says at the end of Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, for those of you that were here Wednesday night, 
I had the privilege of sitting next to Kathy Vaughn, right here in the center in the front, and getting an opportunity to hear some of um, her testimonies as to the work that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing over in um, Uganda, one of the countries in Africa. And one of the stories as I sat next to her that caught my attention as I was studying through this psalm is this. She said she knew a young man who professed to be a Christian. And everybody thought he was a Christian. Yet inside, he confessed that he had no intimate abiding relationship with Jesus. This young man continued for a year or so to watch and study what the Ugandans call the born-agains. What a perfect description. And he wanted what they wanted. He wanted what they had, I should say. Peace and joy and victory in the name of Jesus. He desired that. And he tr- as, he, as he began to study the born-agains, and he began to truly surrender his life to Jesus, he also began to bear the fruit of Jesus living in him and abiding in him to everyone around. And now as he lives his life for Jesus and knows Jesus in a personal, encountered, intimate way, I remember Kathy saying that he can be found sharing the good news of the gospel to everyone who will listen. You know how beautiful is that? And I wonder, how, I wonder how many of us as professed Christians sitting here in this room today praising the name of the Lord Jesus, right? Who do not personally know Jesus nor have a relationship with Jesus as the born-agains do. How many here this morning are not walking in the joy and the peace and the victory that's found in knowing Jesus Christ as Lord? John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may find peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So what does it mean? What does it mean or what does Jesus mean when he began preaching in Mark chapter 1? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. You know, we say that a lot, right? What does it mean? What does it mean to step into the abiding presence of the king of kings and enjoy that Um, times of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. What does it mean? Well, the word repentance in the Greek is a word that's uh, um, pronounced metanoia. And the description of metanoia is a radical moral turn of the whole person from sin and to God. True repentance proves itself by the evidence of actions and fruitful living. Repentance is the appropriate response to the nearness of the kingdom of God. Remember John the Baptist? Always preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near? 
Mounts' Dictionary, which is a dictionary of New Testament terms and some of that kind of stuff, says this. says, an accurate understanding of the use of the word metanoia in the New Testament is essential in order to grasp the gospel message. Because it does not allow for someone to obtain salvation simply by intellectually believing that Jesus is the Son of God without repenting of sins and turning to live for God. You remember in James chapter 2, verse 19? It says the demons know Jesus is the Son of God also and tremble. So what does it mean to believe? You know, what is the depth of the term in the Greek, pisteo. What does it mean? You know, we talk about believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But believe in the original language is deep. It means to trust. It means a complete surrendered trust where I am all in. All the chips are put to the center of the table. I haven't left myself a back way out or a back alley where I can jump in and take care of myself. And it's comprised of three interconnected aspects in all the study and I've been able to find. There's a mental aspect, there's a volitional aspect, and there's an emotional aspect. Now, do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, where the Lord says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your soul. And Jesus added, with all of your mind. You shall love the Lord your God with everything you are. So in a mental aspect of belief, do you have confidence in him? Do you have confidence in his person and his promises. Volitionally, do you have commitment to him as Lord? Are you committed to his ways, his word, and his will? Emotionally, do you have sweet communion with him? Do you abide in him and him in you? You know, so many of us, if we're struggling with confidence in him, it comes out in the form of anxiety and worry and some of the things that Jesus commands, do not do that. Be anxious for nothing. We need to trust him. Let's be like the father of the, um, um, the son that was possessed by the demon. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Are we committed to him? Or do we have confidence in his promises, yet we want to live the way we want to live? Because in that, you're never going to have that sweet communion with him. You know, in Psalm 37, verse 3, 4, and 5, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and lead on his, lean on his faithfulness. 
Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And one of the most wonderful psalms that I love in this this communion, sweet communion of plugging into the vine and sitting at the feet of Jesus, just reposed in his presence, is David in Psalm 27.4. As he says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of you, Lord, and to inquire in your temple. Aaron reminded me of a, a verse at the end of Deuteronomy as we were talking here a couple days ago. I'm going to steal his thunder a little bit because this is apropos in this, in this teaching. Chapter 30, verse 19 and 20. The Lord is speaking through Moses to his chosen people, to the nation of Israel, and he says this. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death Blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. He says, therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. As Jesus preached, as Paul preached, as Peter preached, repent and believe that your sins may be blotted out, that verse 5 of Psalm 52 would not come true, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Open the door and step into faith. Unleash the awesome, transforming power of saving faith in Jesus to give you victory over sin and peace with joy that surpasses all understanding. Trust in Jesus that the old man would die and the new man would be raised up, conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. You see, though David was hunted and persecuted, he was not plucked up or destroyed, but was flourishing in the presence of God. He was bearing fruit and would continue to do so when all his proud enemies were withered like branches lopped from the tree. You see, eternal mercy is David's present confidence. David knew God's mercy to be eternal and perpetual, and in that, he trusted. It says in verse 8, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. We must have faith and holy confidence in the Lord God and in his grace. Not in the world, but in the Lord. Not in my own merit or my own work, but in God's mercy and his grace. See, his great mercy is constant and unchangeable, and his grace will continue through all eternity. We must forever trust in him. Verse 9. 
says, I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. As the Lord's mercy is eternal and perpetual, David says, so shall my thankfulness be. He says, I will praise you forever because you have done it. We must live a life of thankfulness and holy joy in God. His promises to his people and his warnings to those who do not believe are eternally faithful to be true. And he's never, ever missed a promise. He says, I will wait on your name for it is good. All the saints have experienced the benefit of it, who never attended him in vain, never followed his guidance, but it ended well. Nor were ever made ashamed of their believing expectations from him. What is good before all the saints, let us therefore abide and abound in, and in this particularly. Lamentations, chapter 3. Verse 25 and 26 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And as we're getting to our conclusion, let me invite uh, the worship team to come on up. Verse 9 says, I will praise you forever because you have done it. You, my Lord and my God, have saved me from the wickedness of the world. You have saved me from the wickedness in me. I will praise you forever because what you have done in me, you've also made available to anyone that would believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the, right, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Let's reach out to the world with the question of David. Why? Why? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's what Paul had written in 2 Corinthians. Psalm 51 that Rory had an opportunity to teach last Sunday says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering 
and teaching. See, this is the victory that comes with Jesus. This is the joy that comes with Jesus. And our commission is that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, so thankful, so thankful for the cross, so thankful for your son, so thankful Jesus, that you made the great exchange, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, I pray this day that by the power of your spirit, Lord, those men and women in here that have never heard the gospel have heard it. God, that you've touched hearts that you're drawing people to the crossroads of here lies death and here lies life and life is in me, in Jesus. Choose life. Lord, I pray for those of us that have called this our church home for a while, that continue to warm the seats here in this place, but yet do not have an abiding, loving touch of relationship with you, Lord. Lord, grant sweet communion. Grant the presence and power of your holiness, Lord. Invite us in through the torn veil of the flesh of your Son, God. Invite us in to the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, Lord, that we might bow before your presence, before your throne of grace, wrapped in the white robes of Christ's righteousness and worship you in your very presence. Jesus, reign. Reign here. Reign in the hearts and minds of these men and women here. Reign in this town. Reign in this state and in this country. And Lord, may your gospel go forth in power, for we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who would believe. Jesus, we love you. Be honored and be praised here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.